Welcome, world, to another episode of Nobody's a Nobody podcast with me, Mike McVeigh. This is the podcast where I interview people I find absolutely fascinating, and I believe you will too if you give them a chance. This week, we feature the Jimmy Carl, Carl Baker, with Jarvix's hot dog song of the week, Scream Queen, by musician Bad Athlete. Now, this is going to be a little bit different of an interview than normal because, uh, well, Carl and I work together, and we don't talk about work at all. In fact, I find out a lot more about him in this interview than I kind of do anyway. But we do get to talk about things like the Beatles, Buddhism, and living in other countries. It's going to be kind of kind of cool thing. But before we get there, let's talk about um, our nonprofit of the week, a uh, year, uh, season. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, OKC Improv. Um, that's OKCimprov.com. They do classes to help teach people how to do comedy. It's one of the best ways to learn teamwork. I'm currently enrolled in two classes, and if you're in the Oklahoma City area, I do have some shows on March 5th and 6th, assuming nothing gets changed. Um, I love improv. It's it's so much fun for me. Um, everybody has kind of the things that they're most interested in, and this is a community that supports me and um, allows me to develop certain skills that I've never really had an opportunity to develop before. Um, in a way that's uh, a lot of fun. Uh, also want to point out, I guess it's my overarching nonprofit, and that is One OKC, um, Our Neighborhood Empowered in Oklahoma City, oneokc.org, um, or oneokc.org. Uh, they help fight illiteracy and uh, for children and teenagers, and um, a great organization to support. So as I said, we're going to be talking to Jimmy Carl. Uh, I call him that because... How I was introduced was Carl, but then everybody else called him Jimmy when he moved to a different part of the job. So to make it easier, I just combined both the names, and I'll call him Jimmy Carl fairly often. But we do talk about a lot of interesting things, and I think you're going to enjoy this episode. So let's get right into the interview with Carl. You um, have, it's probably not that uncommon for people your age, and you are a little bit older than most of the people that I've had on the show. But you have a fascination with the Beatles that seems to be unrivaled for most of the people I talk to on a daily really? basis. Uh, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, Beatles are been ranked as the number one band, number one music group, and so many different surveys and polls and stuff. But there's something about when you talk about the Beatles in particular, just the, you know, you know there's a little gleam in your eye and stuff that <laughs> just comes out. And... What are some of your first experiences or memories of just kind of falling in love with the Beatles? Oh, gosh, as far back as I, uh, <clears throat> watching them on the first time on the Ed Sullivan show in 1963 or four, whatever that was, on a little black and white TV back in the kitchen of my parents' restaurant. And all the waitresses were crowded around uh, the waitresses that were older than me, the high school girls <clears throat> were all crowded down to watch it too. It was a big deal. <laughs> So what you're saying is your love for the Beatles really had to do with the fact that all the, the girls were interested in the Beatles. That helped. Yeah, it certainly <laughs> helped. <laughs> so you were, your parents worked a, or owned a restaurant when you were a kid? Yeah, they owned a restaurant. Uh, my father started a restaurant after he got back from World War II, opened it in 1947, uh, just north of Muskogee, and operated until he died, really, basically, uh, like 50 years. Uh, up until just a couple of years ago, my brother ran it and, uh, uh, 
I've since found out a lot of people that uh, I work with that were from Troop C, Muskogee, uh, you see it there all the time and knew about it. Uh, what was Baker's, the name of the restaurant? Baker's Catfish. Baker's Catfish, okay. <clears throat> yeah, it was kind of a, was that a northeastern Oklahoma institution. <laughs> we did have chicken, actually. You did yeah. have chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and was that just something your dad had always wanted to do? or? Um, he was a, a cook in the Army world war ii and spent four years in europe and somehow survived that and, and came back and he opened up a little uh gas station at first and then started serving catfish in 1947 48 <clears throat> and uh, never had another job never worked for anybody else was there pressure uh for you to go and take over the family business or what was that uh, like growing up into that world not so much that's what i majored in in college i was hotel and restaurant manager um, or management was HRAD was the, uh, was my major. Um, and I majored in it. I thought, well, I'll do that. Cause I, that's something I've grown up knowing my whole life. And so that it should be a lot easier than, you know, majoring something else. I was wrong. It was not, <laughs> we didn't have a whole lot of organic chemistry at my parents' restaurant, but I had a lot of it in college and it's not easy. <laughs> really organic chemistry for hotel and, um, Services. Well, that was just one of the requirements was I had to have chemistry one and two and then I think organic. And so I had like three semesters of chemistry, um, three semesters of speech class, which was probably my favorite class of all, all the ones I took. <laughs> I made better where, grades in speech than any other class I had. Where did you end up going to college? Uh, Oklahoma State. I heard it's they have a real good, good hotel and restaurant. Uh, program at the time they were there was three the three top hotel and restaurant programs in the nation were uh, Michigan, uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and Oklahoma State. Oh wow! And I originally planned on transferring out to UNLV my last two years because they had a, a program where your your last year you work in a casino uh, that would have been really good experience I thought so, but I didn't. That's, stayed at OSU the whole time and I don't regret it. And what did you do after you graduated college? Uh, worked in the restaurant for a number of years. And <clears throat> then eventually I, uh, dabbled, did a lot of it work, different kinds of, um, different things like that. Um, uh, worked in a call center for a few years with internet tech support and kind of more inclined in that area. And, then I found out about a job working in Iraq in 2006 and applied for that and was hired. And I went to, I went to, to credit Iraq and stayed there for uh, five and a half years and so working for base services and stuff okay. with the military. Okay. What was it like being in Iraq during that time period? <clears throat> oh, it was wonderful. Um, if you had no life, you realize, you realize no one can see your face except for me. So it's going to come across as like, Oh yeah, it was great. I think there's a little sarcasm in there. Though. <laughs> Just a little, <laughs> um, no, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. Uh, we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of incoming and rockets and mortars and stuff there at first. When I first got over there, it kind of died down after the first couple of years. Um, but uh, it was a very satisfying job uh, helping out take care of the military like we did. Um, we worked 84 hours a week, 
So 12 hours a day, seven days a week for four months at a time. And then we got uh, 16 days off. So basically we've got all our weekends at once and uh, <clears throat> it, you have to get your mind right to, to do something like that. Cause all you did was, I mean, you, you actually worked 12 hours a day. It wasn't like uh, you're going to goof off and, you know, probably work three or four or five hours a day and then chill out the rest of the time. No, we were hooked up right. 12 hours a day. So, which made the time go by really fast, but everybody else did the same thing. So it wasn't like, you know, you were missing out on anything because all you did was work, go eat. If you had time, go to the gym and then go, go sleep. Sleep was the most important part of it. Right. I bet. I bet. You couldn't get behind on, couldn't get behind your sleep. There was no Sunday morning to sleep in and catch up if you didn't. Can you go into a little bit more depth of what kind of services you guys provided the military? Yeah, we provided the, uh, what they consider the four basic, uh, base services, which is, uh, laundry services, uh, chow halls, uh, housing and the morale, welfare and recreation MWR department, which was all of the gyms and rec centers, uh, internet and phone banks for the military to use. Um, there was no Wi-Fi or anything like that on, on base. Uh, so they, in order for the military to, to call home, talk to their family and get on the internet, have any internet access, they had to come to a, uh, MWR facility. So it sounds like you're one of the few people that you got a degree in an area that ended up really helping you out yeah. <laughs> in some of your jobs. <laughs> uh, in well, it helped me out in that I was, I, I, I've been around people my whole life. And so it was, you know, from that aspect, that's all we did was we two to two to 3000 people a day would come through one facility, for example. And, um, it helps to have a little, uh, customer service skills. If you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's, it was, it was a really good experience. And while I was there, I uh, started going on, uh, and went on a couple of R and R's with a friend of mine who had lived in Thailand before and went over there, fell in love with it, uh, continued to go back for like the last couple of years that I was in Iraq. And then when the contract ended in at the end of 2011, um, and they kicked us out. Basically, uh, I moved over there and lived for five years. So, I know you'd already lived in one country by the time you moved to Thailand because you had to get. I'm, I'm sure there are some customs things that you'd had to get used to in Iraq that were a little bit different than the U.S. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, <clears throat> it was basically like being well. We we're on a military base, and you never left until you uh, flew out to go on a you know an R and R, and then we okay. had to take bus rides through Baghdad and all that. That was the scariest part of it. Cause we had some, I didn't personally ever have a bad experience getting blown up or anything, but I know a lot of people that did. And it was, that was always the most nerve wracking part of the, the job over there was just going in and out of the country. Once you got in there, it was, it wasn't bad, but it's getting to that spot. Yeah. So, just getting there. So in Thailand, you didn't, um, you didn't go to a military base or anything. You actually just lived in the country, like, um, within the, Right. The country of like, yeah. what was, so was that a pretty big culture shock then? To total 180 degree opposite of, of Iraq. Of course, most every place is, is <laughs> 180 degrees from what I had experienced over there. <clears throat> Not nearly as many people wanting to kill me, <laughs> which is always a plus. Um, now Thailand was great. It's, uh, the people over there, are probably the best, uh, best thing about the whole 
experience having lived there. And I, I met and married my current wife and exported her back to Oklahoma, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you talk about things. Um, <laughs> now, what, um, let's see, where in Thailand did you live exactly? Um, Northern Thailand is uh, second largest city in Thailand, Chiang Mai. It's population of about 2 million. It's second to Bangkok, which by quite a bit, actually, Bangkok is about 10 or 12 million. So it's a huge city. And uh, Chiang Mai was, it's really, it's, Chiang Mai would be the biggest city I ever lived in. If, uh, well, it is the biggest city I've ever lived in <laughs> by far. And uh, just the culture there, the people are so nice. They love Americans. It's one of the last places on earth, if not the last place that they haven't forgot what we've done for them over the years. We've basically kept them out of World War II and Vietnam and they appreciate it and haven't forgotten it. And as American, as an American, you have certain liberties that people from other countries don't have in that if you want to visit Thailand, you get a plane ticket flying to Bangkok, they stamp your passport, you get 30 days. If you want to stay longer, drive across the river into Laos or Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar, any of those places, come back, they give you a stamp, you get another 30 days. Most people from other countries have to go to the Thai embassy before they leave their country and get a, a visa before they can enter Thailand. But as an American, you don't have to. What, what are some of the other benefits of being an American in Thailand? Um, they treat you like a rock star, for one thing. <laughs> If they see you're American, well, they automatically think you have money because if you have enough money to, <laughs> to get to Thailand, you, you probably have more than they do. <laughs> and, but it's, it's, they're not about money. It's not like a lot of people think, oh, yeah, they're just after your money. It's not that way over there. They're, it's a predominantly Buddhist country and they won't do anything that, uh, that Buddha would look down on them for. My wife is a very devout Buddhist. And she won't do anything that, uh, that Buddha wouldn't approve of. <laughs> and except basically for that's you, right? Except for marrying me. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she cleared that with him. <laughs> so when you say they treat you like a rock star, what exactly does that mean? Like what Just, I mean, where you don't, you're not, don't feel like you have any privacy at all or. Oh no, no, uh, not, to that <laughs> not to that extent. It's just like, you know, they see you and their face lights up and, and uh, they just want to roll out the red carpet for you and bend over backwards, you know, to help you do whatever you need. It's so cheap. Everything is so cheap over there, hotels and food and uh, just everything in general. Um, so you're saying the so, cost of living is even less expensive there than it is in Oklahoma? Uh, depends on where you are in Oklahoma. If you're homeless, it might be pretty close to the same price. But, uh, yeah, it's considerably <laughs> considerably less like I say i lived over there for five years and i i rented a house as an american you can you can buy a house whatever you want to over there actually it doesn't matter if you're american or whatever you can you can buy a house you just can't buy the land that it's on you only thai people can own the land so, but there's ways around that that uh legal loopholes that uh, there's a lot of people that live over there and they own a house and they're not worried about it being taken away from them because they don't own the dirt that it sits on um, but, uh, I rented a house for a number of years. That was a three bedroom, uh, full kitchen with a walk-in pantry, nice, nice house. 
$220 a month U.S. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what What are some of the other cultural differences of living in Thailand as opposed to being in the U.S. or Baghdad or whatever? Um, one of the main things that always stood out to me was um, they don't protect people from themselves like we try to do here. You know, if you're stupid and you want to, uh, there's a open high voltage line that you can reach up and grab a hold of. Uh, we're going to spend a million dollars to in, incorporate that thing, you know, build, build a housing around it so that uh, dumbass Johnny can't climb up there and grab a hold of it. Over there, they're just exposed. You could just reach up and grab it. But guess what? You shouldn't. So don't do, they don't. So if you get killed over there, you know, by doing something stupid, then you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so and you're saying refreshing <laughs> yeah um it seems like it's a lot less litigious than the u.s very much be. so very much so uh, yeah. a lot of things they do over there uh, an american company can't sue thai people for uh because of the because the government won't allow it right um there was a i used to go to the doctor at a hospital over there it was mccormick hospital some um uh Irish man and his wife started this hospital like a, a hundred years ago in a school and it's still there. <clears throat> and, you know, Mick Cormick, it might've been, um, no, I think they were Irish. Anyway, there was a coffee shop in there and the coffee shop was called the Mick cafe. <laughs> you couldn't do that here. McDonald's would own you <laughs> in five minutes, but they couldn't touch them over there. So just a lot of little things like that. Um, <clears throat> You know, one of the things that we talk a lot about, uh, it's a common phrase that gets used about how some people just don't have common sense and whatnot. And I, one of my arguments has always been, but what's common sense for me might not be common sense for you because we've come in different areas of the world. Um, you know, the way my family acts or the way your family acts, the culture you're in and stuff, there's so much that plays into it. But I like the idea that basically, um, you know, if you, if you go into an area where you're not supposed to be and you die or you get hurt, it becomes common sense right then. Um, exactly. <laughs> and I'm sure that it gets shared like, Hey, don't, don't uh, touch that wire. Cause if you do, no one's going to care. Um, mm -hmm. and no one's going to stand up for those rights. Did, does that lead to, do you feel like that they had as many civil rights, um, issues as we have, or do you feel like citizens in thailand are treated worse or the same or better like what was your perspective coming from the outside as far as them treating each other you mean or they're yeah um like in america we we treat a lot of um i mean there are positives and negatives on both sides because it is more of a political thing kind of unfortunately but um one side looks to try to make sure everybody has every possible advantage to be treated as well as possible. And then there's other sides that are like, um, you know, people are snowflakes and just move on kind of stuff. Um, um, and just the, the way we, we treat people, we overall, I would say most Americans think everybody deserves a chance to be treated equally, but sometimes you hear about civil rights issues and stuff in other countries. And maybe, I don't know about Thailand specifically, but other countries around there were like with sweatshops, um, with, uh, um, different kinds of factories and stuff. They're not necessarily treating their employees. And since what you said about like the McDonald's thing and with the, um, 
with touching wires, <laughs> live wires and stuff. Do does the <clears throat> are Thai, Thai citizens treated like people? Yeah, yeah, for the most part. And you got to re- remember, this is completely different than our country too. They're a country that is upwards of ninety five percent. They're the same race. They're one race country. The people that are over there from you know here, you know, what's an American? You know, we're every race. We're a melting pot. Well, over there, they're not. Everybody's the same. And if they see anyone that's not Thai, like us, or whatever, uh, that gets your attention. You know, they that stands out. But for the most part, everybody's treated the same because everybody is the same. And they don't know what racism is. You know, they they have one race. So they're they're really they're new to the concept of racism. So in your time there, it would have been during Obama's presidency, correct? Um, just before when Bush was president, when I started going there, I guess, and then Obama was elected about the time that I, after I started going over there, yeah. Okay. Did they, do they react to world news? Um, like when Obama became president, did that, was that just, okay, he's president they, or? Yeah, they do. It's, you know, it's kind of a big deal. They look to us for, you know, leadership and you know we're a huge power in the world and so they look to us in that respect um i remember seeing that there was a bar over there down the street from where i lived uh that had a silhouette of obama and it just said obama we called it the obama bar i'm like why would they have a picture of obama in the middle of northern thailand but they did (laughs) did they do that with any other presidents like a Trump bar well, or a Bush bar? Or... <laughs> I don't know. They might have. I was only, most of the time I was over there, it was Obama. Um, of course, he was president for eight years, so I took most of the time I was over there. Uh, and after I left shortly, <clears throat> I've been back here since 2016, so he was still president then for a little while. Um, but, you know, I, another thing I think that a lot of Americans think that we're the center of the universe and that, you know, there really isn't a need to go anywhere else in the world because we have everything that you could possibly ever want here. Well, other countries don't feel that way. I mean, we aren't that important to them. They do their thing. They go about their, their way of life and all the countries I've been to, you know, they, everybody knows about America, but not necessarily everyone is all that crazy about coming over here to see it. I was fortunate in that my wife did and she likes it here. <laughs> now i do want to get to talking about your wife um, there's one other thing you mentioned a couple different times already that um that when that thailand is a predominantly buddhist country um, mm-hmm. growing up in oklahoma um did you find that kind of weird or since since buddhism probably doesn't even make up a percentage point of oklahomans even um at any time in history <clears throat> Um, was that kind of weird or like, was, was that a different kind of shock or it was, but it was kind of refreshing to be honest with you because uh, that's, I think that's the main reason the people are so nice over there is because basically the gist of Buddhism is the golden rule do under your neighbors, the way you would have them do unto you. And that's the way they live their life. And, and, but they're, and we all say that, but nobody lives that way here, uh, practically. And over there, everybody lives that way. So they're nice to each other. They aren't uh, constantly uh, bickering and bitching about this or that, you know. 
like we are here. And they're and, not just uh, like passive aggressively nice. I mean, they're legitimately, genuinely nice. Oh, they're genuinely nice. Yeah, for sure. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, there's a few exceptions, of course, you know, there's some bad seeds everywhere you go, but, uh, that's, that's the vast minority over there. I, I had a friend who, uh, w- uh, served in the military in Japan, uh, for a few years and it was the area he was stationed was, um, very, very Buddhist as well. And he ended up becoming a Buddhist for the longest time. And, um, then when he came back to us, he eventually became Christian and actually a pastor, but he mentioned huh. that, um, that one of the things that Americans talk about that love and stuff. And, um, but he would take the Buddhists from Japan to rival any, any community in America that talked about Christianity being family or, um, being like this love focused and stuff because the culture just over and where he was in Japan was very much like that. So I, that, that resonates. Oh, I would with totally agree. That. Yeah. Um, so your wife, you, you met her in Thailand. Did she already speak English when you met her? Like is English commonly spoken in Thailand? I guess that's a question. Well, it, it is. Um, unfortunately, most every country I've been to, uh, you know, in the middle East, Dubai and, um, Malaysia, different countries like that, that I've been to, um, if they speak any language other than their own, it's usually English. So we're very fortunate as Americans that, you know, plus it makes you lazy at the same time, because I didn't learn Thai as well as I wish I'd had, Uh, I can get by, you know, if I'm over there by myself, I can, I can get by just fine, uh, with my little bit of Thai and their little bit of English. And it's usually not a problem. Um, Especially if you just say Obama bar, it makes it. <laughs> yeah, Obama bar. <laughs> I think uh, I have a picture of that somewhere. <laughs> so, so talk about what it was like meeting your wife, and um, and, and not because just me. I mean, obviously your wife is amazing because she deals with you, but we all have our <laughs> <laughs> we all have our stories of the significant others that come into our lives, and we think it's interesting. But because there were some specifically cultural differences that. Um, at the very least, uh, being an American, being Thai, Thai and then um, whatever, I'm, I'm assuming you weren't Buddhist when you moved to Thailand. Um, uh, so at least you came from a Christian-esque culture, even if that's not necessarily what you participated in and getting involved with the Buddhist and stuff. What? Um, just talk a little bit about that journey of uh, meeting her and then bring her to the U.S. Well, yeah, and she, she spoke pretty good English. And she learned it on her own. She didn't go to school to learn English or anything. She had already, she already knew she, she could, you know, I could communicate with her. And then she taught me quite a bit of Thai from there on. And, uh, but one of the nicest things I think about it was, uh, after I met her, then I started going back over there on, on R and R trips and she would meet me at the airport. It it was an ordeal. Sometimes it would take you three days to get from Iraq to Thailand, uh, to, you know, to start your vacation because we'd have to leave our camp, go to Baghdad, spend at least one night there, then fly out of Baghdad on a charter to Dubai. Sometimes you'd spend another night there and then fly direct from there to, to Bangkok. But she would meet me at the airport and I didn't have to do another thing. I didn't have to go get a hotel, figure out where we were going to stay, find the taxi. She would do all that for me. And of course in Thai. So when I got there, I could truly relax. I could just kick back. She would get the cab and we'd go wherever. Uh, so you literally met her when you were living in Baghdad. And so she's the reason why you <clears throat> moved to Thailand, I'm guessing. 
Right. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. So did you meet her at the Obama bar or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't meet I actually met her at her, her cousin owned a bar and she worked there and that's where I met her. But it wasn't the Obama uh, bar. It was the Bush it bar. Was not, it was not the Obama <laughs> bar. No, her cousin was married to a Canadian guy and there was a maple leaf sign. I'll never forget on the a maple leaf on the sign out front. And it was called the hungry beaver. <laughs> where, where they came up with that, I don't know. But, and that, it got my attention though. And so just really, um, just meeting her there, relationship started and you moved to Thailand. Uh, did you guys get married when you were in Thailand or? I did. Yeah. We got married there. I'd known her for about five years before we got married. And, um, but having had the restaurant background that I've had, uh, I looked around after going over there a couple of times and thought this would be a good place to open a restaurant. So when the contract in Iraq ended in 2012, I moved over there and I opened a Mexican restaurant called Loco Elvis, believe it or not. <laughs> and people look at me funny when I tell them about Mexican restaurant in Thailand. Well, you wouldn't want to open a, a Thai restaurant in Thailand. <laughs> That'd be the last thing you'd want to do. And there wasn't very many Mexican restaurants. It's a big tourist area. There's a lot of, uh, Americans and just Westerners in, in general that vacation and a lot of a lot who live over there retired over there and they get tired of Thai food after a while and they want a burrito. So it, it worked out really well. And we, I did that for about five years and met some real interesting people. Some of them were from here that I met there, some interesting stories. Um, but, uh, I ran across someone who wanted it worse than I did. So I sold it and I asked my wife, do you, would you like to move back to Oklahoma? And she goes, sure. And here we are. So the, the loco Elvis ended up being fairly successful then. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Uh, we had live music several nights a week and karaoke and had a bar and it was in the, most of the restaurants and all over there are open because the weather is nice year round. It never freezes. So they just, it's just open to the street. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> they had basically what would be considered a sort of miniature garage doors that you just pull around to close the front of your business up. Um, that otherwise we opened those up in the morning and it was open all day long and had seating out on the sidewalk and in, in inside as well. And it was on the old, there's an old moat that was around the old original inner city in Chiang Mai to protect it from the, the city from at originally at the time it was built in like, 11 or 1200 it's been there that long um the burmese they were always fighting with the burmese in the north and so that was that was the old inner city the in the 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 moat is still there it's four miles in in uh, each direction with old brick entrances to the entrances to the city and stuff that's really cool uh photographically a lot of great photo ops over there from the moat and they've got fountains out in the middle of it that spray up and and it's a real real touristy area <clears throat> and um a lot of uh, like i said a lot of americans retire over there i've asked most of them you know why'd you decide to retire in, in thailand and almost all of them say the same thing because i can't afford to retire in the united states wow they can live just they can live just fine over there and they're there's no crime huh. uh I'm a gun guy. I've always been a gun person. My father uh, raised me hunting and fishing, uh, but you don't own guns in Thailand as a oh, civilian. Really? Yeah. 
I mean, you can, but you know, there's loopholes around, but nobody has a gun basically. And there's really no crime. Now, whether that has anything to do, I think it's more of, more of fact that, uh, they're predominantly Buddhists and Buddha wouldn't want you to rob somebody than the fact that they don't have guns, but still they don't. There's shooting ranges that you can go to over there. And it's kind of a big deal. Like, Oh, you want to go shoot a gun? Like that's, they never shot a gun. Oh, wow. And you can go in and shoot a nine millimeter Glock or whatever. And they charge you, but everything's cheap in Thailand, but they charge you like $10 a bullet to shoot, a, <laughs> to shoot a pistol over there. So not many people do it. Right. Though it seems like that's almost become how much, how expensive ammo is right now. Anyway, oh, Now here. Yeah. I'm talking. Yeah. Years ago, I know. But... I know. I know. <laughs> um, and I'm going to kill myself or hurt myself if I don't ask this. So the live music that you had at your Mexican restaurant, was it a Beatles cover band uh, or was it uh, music? They, a lot of, they have a lot of classic rock and roll type bands over there that are tied. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. We had a band that was really good that one of the best guitarists I've ever heard in my life, his name was Joe. That wasn't his real name. They all have nicknames. A little Thai <laughs> guy that he couldn't speak a lick of English. It was a band called the Lords of Rock. And they played a lot of, <laughs> played a lot of Deep Purple, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, wow. That kind of stuff. Well, you know, that got my heart, Stevie Ray Vaughan, baby. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stevie Ray is huge over there. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I decorated the restaurant with all kinds of old, old classic rock, you know, memorabilia, posters, uh, gold records, that kind of stuff. And uh, it was, like I said, there was a lot of, our customers were probably 80% American. Okay. Or American or, you know, British European. Right. Um, one night I was in the bar and there was a group of college students <clears throat> in there. And this girl came over to me, young girl, and she said, are you Jimmy Baker? Well, I looked at her. I didn't know who she was. Uh, yeah. She goes, well, I'm Johnny Watson's daughter. <laughs> a guy I went to high school with in Wagner. <laughs> wow. That's pretty. They, she didn't know. She didn't know I was over there. She recognized me somehow. But, I, you know, she hadn't seen me since she was a little bitty. And I don't think she even knew I was in Chiang Mai. And like I said, there was 2 million people uh, population in the town. So well, there's a lot of bars they could have been in. But for some reason, they were in ours. Her, every time I see her father now at funerals and stuff, he always brings that up, that he couldn't believe that she ran ran into me over there. <laughs> that's interesting. And that's that's yeah. kind of cool. It's No matter how big the world is, it's also small enough that – you can see your friend from high school's daughter and they recognize you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. So when you, when you guys decided to move back to the U S uh, specifically Oklahoma, which, uh, always, I mean, I know this, I probably need to talk to your wife to get more specifics, but that had to be a huge culture shock for her coming from even, even a busy city in Thailand. Um, just from what you're saying the the cultural, norms and stuff of nice and stuff i'm sure i mean oklahoma we we nod our heads and stuff and um, say hi and everything but we also mm. say bless your heart <laughs> right in very very mean ways uh what was that from <laughs> from your your perspective what was that like for her moving to oklahoma um it was not as much of a culture shock as i thought it would be i thought it would be huge and you know there are a lot of things that it surprises her over here uh one thing, how much it costs, uh, the, the price of healthcare and, uh, medical and dental and prescription medicine, which is not basically non-existent over there. You don't have a, a problem with that. That was a, a big shock to her. She couldn't believe how expensive things are, how long it takes. 
when you can just go get your tooth filled in an afternoon and pop in with no appointment in Thailand and, and it's, you know, $150 and you're out of there. And, uh, that, and of course she likes the snow. They've never seen snow and it never got below 50 degrees the whole time I lived over there. So they don't, they do things different. They don't, they don't build things so that they don't freeze. They'll run water lines down the side of a house or a building and, uh, you know, water and sewer and stuff like that. You, it's not going to freeze up. So they don't even give it a thought. And so here you, that's a major concern. Um, I probably noticed that more than she did. They don't pay much attention to it, but, um, well, she wasn't a house builder. So I mean, <laughs> well, no, <laughs> so and she can't believe all the houses here are built out of wood. That was a big surprise to her. She can't believe that they build houses out of, out of lumber. Um, really? yes, everything over there is built out of concrete or, uh, concrete block that in the, uh, facade over it, you know, that's not it's not because there's any shortage. Yeah, it's not because there's a shortage of lumber over there because it's just one big forest. You know, basically the whole country right. is a big greenhouse, but uh, they build everything out of uh, pretty much out of concrete block and cement. Huh. That that's the first time I've heard that specific thing. Um, I read a lot of blogs and different people posting about what the culture shocks of moving to the United States, but the lumber thing—that's a first. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I never knew. There's actually several Buddhist temples around Oklahoma City. I don't know about Oklahoma outside of Oklahoma City, but uh, there's quite a few here that I would have never known existed before until I brought her over here. Um, over there, Sunday is no big deal. It's not If there's a day that they close for something, it's usually Sunday. If anybody closes, uh, government offices and stuff like that will close, but it's not for religious reasons necessarily. Right. But the temples, and there were hundreds of just unbelievable temples in in well in thailand in general there's thousands but uh, there was something like 500 or more temples just in chiang mai uh, area they're all real ornate real beautiful and you basically go to the temple and pray uh, on the day of the week in which you were born so if you were born on a tuesday then you go to temple on tuesday you can go anytime but they would go to the, they call them Watts, W-A-T, uh, that the temples are called Watts. And you would go on, typically on the day that you were born is when you're supposed to go to the, to the Watt. Wow. So I guess I'd be going on Wednesdays then. That's it, when I was born. <laughs> it cuts, cuts down the crowds that way, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that idea alone, cutting down on the crowds is kind of anti what we do in the u.s is we want to have as many people as possible and stuff oh yeah <laughs> uh, for the most part there's exceptions of course true um <laughs> now probably this might take up the rest of our time but uh so when she moved to oklahoma um, i'm assuming that she's not didn't take a temporary visa of just traveling and visiting and you know because you guys have been here now for six years mm-hmm. or going on six years um is she applying to be a U.S. citizen, or what, what's what's she trying to do? That that'll be the next step. She has her green card now, but it took us forever to get that. Uh, what we did before I left, I checked around to see, you know, what protocol was and what kind of hoops she had to jump through. And um, basically, since we were married, it made it a little easier for her to get a visa to come to the United States. Normally, if a Thai person gets a visa, they'll get one that's good for. Um, 
a year, maybe one or two years, and they can come over here and go back according to the terms of the visa. And then when they apply for the next one, they usually get a 10 year. Well, when we applied for hers, we got a 10 year visa first time. Now that doesn't mean she could stay here for 10 years. She could stay here for whatever the amount of time, the person that your point of entry, which in our case was Chicago, the uh, immigration officers, officers stamped her passport. Uh, it's up to him whether he gives you two weeks or six months, but it can be up to six months, but not more than that. And so we came over here and then I started checking into uh, what I have to do to get her green card status. Well, it turns out <clears throat> we had the wrong type of visa. We had a, a visitor's visa, a tourist visa for her. And she wanted to come over here and, and uh, become a, well, ultimately a U.S. citizen, but at least get her green card. And that's really all you need. If you have your green card, that's all you need for from now on. There's people who lived here for 30, 40 years and uh, just have a green card and they're not citizens and that's fine. Uh, but we had the wrong visa. So we found out we had to apply to have her status of her visa changed uh, so that she could apply for a green card. And that took an extra couple of years and hundreds of dollars more. <clears throat> and uh, so finally, after about four years, we, we got her green card. But you get, you get a uh, work authorization card first, and that's usually pretty easy to get. They, they'll, you apply for that, and you get that, and they're usually good for two years. And there's people that just renew their work authorization card every two years and stay here for years and years and years, and that's totally acceptable, too. But you get that, and your... Uh, Social security cards, you get that very quickly. They want you to pay in those taxes. So social security cards is usually the easiest thing for them to get. <clears throat> and uh, but once they get a green card, if they're married to a U.S. citizen, you can apply for citizenship within after three years after you receive your green card. And if you're not married to a U.S. citizen, it takes five years. So there's some advantages to being to being married to me. <laughs> Oh, so that, that's why she puts up with you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> and where, where is she currently on that journey? Is she like in year two, one, three of, uh, this will uh, be our second year. So I guess next year we'll be able to apply for uh, citizenship. Okay. Well, that's probably exciting. Um, one way or another will be exciting. Yeah. She's excited about it. And, um, uh, one thing I might add, she's a really good cook. She cooks, Entire, I didn't realize that, that she'd had the background that she had uh, cooking, you know, specifically with Thai food, but she could cook anything. Um, and we weren't back here any time at all. And she got a job working at a Thai restaurant. She she cooks at a Thai restaurant downtown Oklahoma City and just loves it. Well, which one? Uh, so the people in Oklahoma it's, City can all oh. go and ask for <laughs> her as their cook. It's, uh, it's called Thai Kitchen. It's downtown on uh, 3rd and Hudson. Okay. Kind of just north of Midtown or downtown. Well, and I, not I'm quite sure, to Midtown. Um, and what would you recommend as a specific meal that people either that maybe not haven't had Thai food or just like, hey, even if you had Thai food, this is the one dish. What's the one dish that she cooks up there that you would recommend everybody try? I would probably say the spicy chicken. It's not, it's not spicy and hot by our standards by any means. Right. Uh, it's it's got a good spice to it, but it's not hot. 
unless you want to order it that way. It's served on a big bed of rice. Okay. And either that or the buffet. They do a buffet at lunch. Okay. Through do, they the chance, do they by any chance have curry on that buffet? Uh, yes. They have three okay. different kinds of curry. <laughs> I found out, I, I wish I would have found it out when I was younger, but um, I can't always deal with some of the American spices, uh, specifically Mexican <laughs> food. Um, that spice doesn't go very well but a friend a few years ago took me out to a indian restaurant and i was really scared because i heard how spicy everything was and i mm-hmm. had him like oh i can deal with this spice and then i've since then i've had um some thai um thai and uh, i want to say some vietnamese and uh, pretty much anything that has curry i can i can deal with that spice a lot more than i can with oh yeah, yeah. Spice. the masaman curry is really good um, usually has chicken and potatoes in it. And, um, but Thai, the Thai curry is very similar to, to the Indian food. And I love Indian food as well. When I was in Iraq, we had a lot of Indians and worked with over there and they were, they got me hooked on, on Indian food. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I've eaten at several Indian places around the Oklahoma city area that are really good. They're all good. Well, that's good and to hear. Can't, can't go wrong with the curry. <laughs> I, I agree <laughs> but is there anything that you would like to that you wanted to mention that i mean i won't lie i was thinking we were going to talk more about the beatles than anything else but the rest of your life's actually pretty interesting <laughs> um well i yeah i guess we kind of got away from the beatles thing didn't we a little bit uh, i do have one kind of interesting story about the beatles me personally that i witnessed that was pretty cool um i don't know if you're a familiar with carl perkins he was a early rockabilly oh yeah yeah a person from tennessee mm-hmm. that when rock and roll was just getting started he was one of the pioneers him and johnny cash and elvis and roy orbison jerry lee lewis all of them were were uh, running in the same circles and the beatles really looked up to carl perkins he didn't know that at first but they initially recorded three of his songs on their early album, one of their early albums, 63 or four. And um, uh, especially Paul and George just idolized Carl. And they kept the relationship up with him throughout his life and performed with him several times. And <clears throat> but Carl died in 1998. And I have a, he lived in Jackson, Tennessee. And I've got a real good friend that I've known since the 70s that lives in Jackson who knew Carl personally and went to school with his, with his kids there. And so when Carl passed away, knowing that he had ties with, you know, he was really uh, loved and revered in the music industry. Uh, would there be any Beatles at the funeral? <clears throat> well, of course, John was long since dead. Paul quit coming to funerals years ago because he realized that if he went to a funeral, it became a Paul Beatles sighting and it, it took away from the, funeral who the you know the person who the funeral was for right so he would he would shy away from funerals and come pay his respects at another time um and at the time george was it had come out that he had some illness they didn't know it turned out to be brain cancer he'd been battling it for a year or two at that point and so yeah he's too ill to come so my friend david calls me hey you know why don't you come out to it's going to be a public funeral and it's going to be in a, a little chapel on the local college campus there in Jackson. So, okay. So I load up and go out there. Well, we go to the funeral and it's just in a little small chapel. It was real crowded. 
and there's a, a local TV station broadcast the funeral. And you can look this up and see that I'm not making this up. If you want to, there's a clip of it on YouTube. So we're in the setting in the pews, you know, about halfway back. Again, not a big, not a big chapel at all. And the family comes in last and sits down front. And they're sitting in there for some reason. This was a two and a half hour funeral, by the way. It was more like a show than it was a funeral. All these people that knew Carl got up and spoke. There was three different preachers that gave eulogies throughout the funeral. And uh, they a lot of music, uh, of course, during the service. And uh, for some reason, Winona Judd and Billy Ray Cyrus were kind of the MCs of the funeral. Uh, they kind of, you know, brought different people up. Ricky Skaggs was there. Garth Brooks was there. He didn't sing or perform at all, but he was there. Uh, one of the preachers that spoke was Johnny Rivers. If you remember Secret Agent Man and some of the songs from back in the 60s around Memphis. Right. Uh, was a guy named Johnny Rivers, had a very distinct voice. Um, he uh, He's a, a preacher in, in Memphis, and he got up and spoke for a little bit too. So at one point... Um, been a little while into the funeral Winona Judd looks down and she says she says George why don't you come up here and, and do it play a song I know Carl would have wanted you to and we thought that's probably you know George Anderson some guy that Carl knew from from Nashville or something guy gets up and walks up on the stage got long black hair and turns around and sits down it's George Harrison he had come to that funeral made it a point to be there as ill as he was he died a couple of years later uh, but he made it to the funeral. They handed him a guitar and he sat down and sang one of Carl's songs from beginning to end and didn't miss a lick. And uh, everybody was just amazed. By that time, by the end of the funeral, now it had been broadcast all over town. So when we got outside, it was like a it was like a Beatles sighting. There was a big crowd of women and all. we were standing outside when George came out to get in the limousine to leave. And all the girls in the background were screaming, George, George. It just kind of took you back, you know, the. I yeah. thought that was pretty cool, you know, for somebody that uh, no one would have thought any less of him if, if he had not come to the funeral because they knew he was very ill, terminally ill. Uh, but he did whatever he had to do to get himself there. And uh, and that was just pretty cool. That's, that is that really cool. how much how much the, the Beatles love Carl Perkins. Yeah, so, well, <clears> that's my sure. That's my six degrees of bacon for the Beatles right there. <laughs> well, if you think about it, uh, that connection right there, you now have connection to pretty much every musician ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, thank you for sharing that story. Um, I always love hearing that story, and it hasn't changed very much, so I don't I don't think I have to look up anything just to prove it happened. <laughs> it's pretty uh, cool to look up, though. They did a really terrible job of the camera work on it, but you can, you, you can just go into YouTube and – and uh, type in Carl Perkins, George Harrison, and it'll pop up. Okay. It's like five minutes long or something. It's kind of cool. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Um, I'm sure several will enjoy this episode because we cover lots of different things. And, <laughs> um, um, it's always kind of cool to people that you you know and you're friends with to see the life that they've lived. And um, maybe you don't always think of it this way. Uh, but you live Am I dying or life. something? It sounds like no. I'm about out of here. No, oh, okay. No, I hope not. I mean, okay. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you are, um, can I have your guitar? <laughs> I thought I was a couple of weeks ago, but that's another story for me. <laughs> Hot dog. Hot dog. Hot dog. Hot dog.
Hey listeners, it's Jarvix again with my hot dog song of the week. This episode, I've got Bad Athlete, a power pop band out of Norman, Oklahoma. They've been making music off the beaten path of their peers for the past handful of years, and they've really been putting in the work lately. They dropped a new full-length album last summer called Super Bad Athlete, which has an album cover of the band's logo stickered onto the front of a Super Nintendo cartridge. You might expect something along the lines of 16-bit video game music, or at least a large electronic influence. But Bad Athlete uses this nostalgic iconography more to indicate the fun in the album than anything too literal. The album really has a sound that's more in line with 1950s doo-wop music and 1980s pop rock. So yeah, this band needs to play some proms, especially given how love-centric their songs are. I perked up when Bad Athlete's debut EP released in 2018, which showed a lot of these characteristics too. In fact, that's not long after Feel Spectres released their album, Little Boy with the Ray Gun. And while I'm almost certain these two bands don't know each other despite sharing a music scene, I sense a lot of similarities. The upbeat energy, the shared vocals, the poppy songwriting, and the comfortable tempos are all part of what make these two bands special. Now I don't want to get Mike thinking we've got another Feel Spectres on our hands, because there can only ever be one Feel Spectres, but I think the comparison is worthy. But Bad Athlete is more garagey, more meat and potatoes than bells and whistles. They're a lot more DIY, and I dig that. The song I have today is a new one that came out in January, a single called Scream Queens. It ups the femme vocal spotlight to reflect its namesake, which draws particularly from the camper slasher genre of horror movies. Rather than focus on the scary aspects, though, this is a power anthem celebrating female protagonists while capitalizing on the band's rah-rah high school energy. This one's all popcorn and fun times, which can be had all year round rather than reserved for just October, so I think it's pretty cool that this dropped as early as it did. If you like what you hear, we always like to recommend Bandcamp in this segment, and all of Bad Athlete's music is available there at badathlete.bandcamp.com. Here is Scream Queens by Bad Athlete.
thank you to Bad Athlete. Very much enjoyed this song. And Jarvix, I love the Phil Spectres, but hey, I love a lot of bands. Uh, you can check out most of these bands on Bandcamp and check out Jarvix at makeanormalweirder.com. He does some great stuff to keep up with the Oklahoma music scene. Uh, thank you, Carl, for taking the time to interview with me. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I'm looking forward to putting out some more episodes this season. Um, 2022 has some weird stuff going on, but it still seems to be a little bit better than 2021. But let's make it a great year. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, remember that nobody is a nobody, and that means you. Until next time. <laughs>